I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner in Kansas City, and joined with me today is Chuck Marone, a regular co-host and founder of Strong Towns. Chuck, it's really good to see you. Hopefully, my sound isn't all messed up. I'm uh, day two snow day working from home. (laughs) So unexpectedly, I don't have my normal audio equipment. So hopefully you sound great. It's very quaint for me to think of you snowed in at home. Like I, I I like that thought and that idea. And I feel like it's, uh, you know, preparing you for your migration, uh, ultimately up to (laughs) be my neighbor, uh, to live in my neighborhood next to me. So we can do this, you know, from our porches and all that. It's going to be great. And you will love, I mean, we, we are in frozen hoth conditions here. I mean, when you look at, you know, cutting open a tauntaun and sliding people inside, we're we're basically near that right now. It's brutal up here. And yet you made it to the office. I see. Yeah, I am here. I embrace winter. Like I really like I'm a Minnesotan. I really like winter. You won't catch me complaining about winter. But there is a point in the middle to end of February where it kind of feels like piling on a little bit and you're just like, okay, okay, let's, let's move on with it. But yeah, apparently there's like a 30 car pile up on the highway up the road because the wind whipping across the lake has made it whiteout conditions, which that's a little aggressive, even for us. I mean, it gets cold here and it gets snowy here, but the wind is almost like Dakota-esque, you know, and I'm, I'm, I live in Minnesota, not the Great Plains. Well, I don't want to, you know, overstate the situation here in Kansas City because, (laughs) you know, it's probably nothing compared to what you guys get. But I will say that it is kind of rare to be held up for two days. I expected to be going into the office today. I actually got my car out of the snow. I got out of my parallel parking space on the street headed down the road and then got to an intersection and was just completely stuck next to this Jeep. And the Jeep was just look, the guy was just looking at me like I'm stuck too. And so, you know, <laughs> took a while to get, get out of that spot. You and- know what you need, Abby? <laughs> what, what do I need? You need some insomnia cookies is what you need. I know. Good luck getting a driver to deliver them. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of rare for um, the roads to not be clear by now, but the, this snow that we got was kind of unique. It's just really heavy and dense, but I'll save it for my down zone. You'll be happy to know that I went out in it. Let me ask, is it making people enraged and angry and, and prompting them to drive drunk without their seatbelts on? Um, hopefully not. evidently that's an <laughs> epidemic right now. <laughs> right. Which is exactly what we are going to talk to uh, talk about today. And hopefully we can talk about the system one versus system two psychology here, but ho- hopefully the snow puts everybody into the system two, oh, uh, system two. Frame have to. of right. mind. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So hopefully not. 
So the article that we're going to be covering today was published in the New York Times by Simon Romero, and it is entitled Pedestrian Death Spike in the U.S. as Reckless Driving Surges. So the story cites data showing that fatalities over the past couple of years have been growing to record levels since the pandemic began. Pedestrian deaths in 2020 were up about 5% from the previous year, and pedestrian deaths per vehicle miles traveled was up 21% in that same year. And preliminary data from 2021 is suggesting that this trend is only continuing. This reality is, of course, off from the original prediction that experts were saying pedestrian deaths were going to decrease due to reduced driving and times during lockdowns and stay-at-home orders and work-from-home conditions. Now that we have these emptier roads that have uh, allowed drivers to drive faster, experts are now seeing that the, that people are getting into more accidents, and they're actually pointing towards uh, increased anxiety levels, increased alcohol consumption, and just the general fray from social norms as reasons for increased uh, traffic deaths. There's actually this, this piece from Dr. Spiegel, who is the director of Stanford Medical, Stanford Medical School's Center on Stress and Health, where he calls this salient saturation and is explaining that people are so saturated with fears about the virus that they have stopped considering other threats, essentially. And then he also says that social disengagement is potentially you know, contributing to the, to the issue of risky driving over the past couple of years. And according to the article, erratic behavior just in general has been going up, citing an increase in robberies and homicides. So, Chuck, you actually talked about this issue in detail on the Strong Towns podcast a few weeks ago, I think it was. Can you talk a little bit about how you were perceiving this issue and ultimately what some of your conclusions are about what might be actually causing fatalities to rise? Do you think that this is, you know, purely a, a psychological shift where we're all just so stressed out that we just can't drive well anymore? I find this whole article and this series of articles, there was two articles this week from the New York Times, basically on the same topic or, you know, a similar, similar take. This is following a series of articles in major publications around the country that have said basically the same thing. We, we become deranged. We become psychologically broken. And, and some of it say, you know, it, it's a bunch of people who are disrespectful and don't care. They, one, one went as far as to say, like, people won't wear masks and now they're not slowing down. Another one, you know, talked about how we just have this abject fear now of the virus. And so we're going out and uh, drinking and driving and, and not wearing our seatbelts and acting reckless. And I, I find these articles, I, at first I found them bemusing. Then I found them, you know, bewildering. And, and now I'm at the point where they're making me angry. And they're making me angry because they are imposing a, a ridiculous narrative, a narrative that I think a lot of people in the media, maybe we would like to believe, and a lot of people who are feeling tense right now would like to believe, but a narrative that just is not grounded in, in any kind of data or any kind of like real world observation of what is going on. There's a great book called Risk by a guy named John Adams. And, you know, it talks about how people have a certain risk threshold. 
And that when we do things to uh, lower risk, it tends to not lower the overall amount of risk that people take. It just displaces that risk. And, and let me simplify that down. When you take a street and you widen out the lanes and you give extra um, buffer room on both sides and you clear out the trees and you make it so that the risk for the driver is very nominal. Like I can, I can go down this street and I'm not likely to hit things because I've been giving all this extra room to move. There's a certain like simplistic notion that drivers will use all that extra capacity, all that extra buffer room to just be safer, right? And I almost feel like this is like my mom going, well, be safe, Chucky, out on the road. You know, it's like th there's this sense that like all these things make people safer. And time and time and time again, and it doesn't even take like a deep analysis as to why, we recognize that humans don't use that buffer to be safer. What they do is they drive faster. When you put bigger pads on linebackers in the NFL in order to you know, protect them from aggressive hits, what do they do? They don't enjoy that extra protection as a safety buffer for their own health. They go and they hit people even harder. And they've shown again and again that when you increase padding in the NFL, severe injuries actually goes up. When you increase padding on our roadways, people drive faster and the amount of trauma goes up. The amount of fatalities goes up. This is a truism. So we over-design and we overbuild and we over-engineer in the guise of safety when we're actually making things less safe. And then what we see is that our systems become overwhelmed with congestion. Right? They become overwhelmed with cars out there creating congestion. And what does congestion do? It does the opposite of what all that safety buffer does. It actually slows things down. It actually requires things to operate at a very slow speed. And because we have these peak commuting times when there's lots of congestion, most people who are traveling today are traveling in a system that's over-engineered for the speed they're driving way, way over-engineered for the speed they're driving. Um, and they have to not use hardly any of that capacity because they're stuck in congestion. And most people experience safety, not by design, but, but by default, right? Because the system's screwed up. And so they get the benefit of having their drive be safe because it's slow. All right. Start the pandemic, remove all the cars. Now cars are coming back, but they're spread out over the course of the day. They're not clustered in a peak hour in the beginning and the end. People are working from home. They're choosing when to take their trips. They're taking them at different times. And now what you have is a situation where the peak danger zone, which is free-flowing traffic at really high speeds in complex environments where you have people walking and biking and stopping to park and turning in and out of traffic. That's the peak danger zone. When you combine that with high speeds, we have that for hours more than we ever had it before. And yes, you know what that's going to do? That's going to create an astonishing level of carnage. It's going to create a huge jump in the number of crashes, a huge jump in the number of traumatic injuries, and a huge jump in the number of fatalities. And that's exactly what we see. And it's not difficult to predict. It's not hard to understand. Does that mean that we're not suffering like some psychological things? I, I, I'm not going to argue that our culture is like perfectly normal and fine and like everything's great and that the pandemic hasn't created overall levels of anxiety and what have you. But the idea that that is causing 20% spike in automobile crashes, you know, 20% spike in pedestrian deaths, that's just us 
lying to ourselves and ignoring the obvious thing in front of us. And I, I am getting fed up and angry at particularly, I mean, it's one thing to go to media outlets and have the media hunt down this narrative and, and, and kind of push this narrative forth. And I'd like to talk about that a little later too. But, but the second part is I am, I am disgusted by these so-called safety experts who this is their explanation, right? Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly it. I mean, you look at this article, right? This, this article in the Times, and it starts out with this boy, a seven-year-old named Pranoy, who was killed. There's been some people who on Twitter have have shown, have linked to, and shown the intersection where this happened. This intersection is is a design malpractice. It has slip lanes. It has wide lanes. It is it is a ridiculously unsafe intersection. And that anyone could look at this crash and say, well, it's obviously like the cause of, you know, some derangement syndrome that we have, and not, you know, the the fact that this intersection is designed for people to walk across it, and it's dead. It's designed to be deadly. It's just an obscene, you know, injustice, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know. So we have these two basically competing explanations for what is contributing to the issue of increased traffic fatalities um, falling between, you know, the psychological versus the physical factors. And this New York Times article, along with many other articles, kind of overemphasize the psychological factors over factors within the physical world. I mean, most of these articles don't even mention the design of streets at all, which is quite frustrating. Um, But I think what is even worse is that I think they actually oversimplify uh, the, the psychological factors that may be at play here. And I don't want to discount them completely, but I think that they oversimplify them. And then they apply this like culture war narrative on top of that to try to explain that. And I think what they're doing is just feeding what feeding people what they're eating right now, um, which is not to say that that's a good thing, but it's just, you know, that's just what they're doing because it seems that that's all they know how to do these days. Your analysis is very much this counter-emphasizing the physical factors that allow for erratic driving behavior. The physical conditions that existed prior to the pandemic, our, our physical environments in most cities just, I mean, the truth is that they, is that they allow for fast speeds. They um, you know, allow for people to be able to swerve on the road. Um, most most local streets are designed like like freeways, basically, which is a huge reason why collisions happen in places where there's a lot of random activity of people crossing streets and things happening. The way that I was kind of thinking about this is just to kind of back up and understand why people drive erratically in the first place. To kind of break it down, it's just that people participate in behaviors that they are comfortable participating in broadly. So people drive at the speed that they're comfortable driving at. And this has a lot to do with, you know, probably personal risk tolerance. I think that there are both physical and psychological influences to how you assess risk subconsciously when you're driving. And the psychological factors are influenced by, you know, perhaps what has happened in the past couple of years, maybe even longer than that. I mean, it's going to depend on the person, but it also depends on 
a person's, you know, socioeconomic characteristics. My grandma is probably a safer driver than my little sister is <laughs> for lots of reasons that, you know, are far beyond the drama of this moment. I think I get what you're saying. I don't know as I would agree with that. So driving is, you know, from a cognitive standpoint, is something that we do without thinking. That's not completely true either. We, we, we use our passive brain, right? So Daniel Kahneman wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, and it talks about system one and system two cognition. Uh, system one being the very rapid subconscious. We don't have to, you can think of it as not having to crowd things out of your brain in order to do it. Driving is system one. And that's why you can drive and listen to the radio and sing along to the song and talk to someone in the neighboring seat, right? System two is the active engaged part of your brain. It's, it's the part of your brain that crowds everything else out in order to focus on one thing. Um, that is the, you know, when you're doing a, the SAT test, you're using system two because you're focused very deeply on what you're doing. When you're watching TV, you're often using system one, right? Or when you're listening to the radio, you're using system one. When we drive, I think a lot of activists, a lot of people who think about this in the abstract would like driving to be a system two activity, something where you're highly focused on it all the time. But the reality is, is it's a system one activity. And if it was system two, we, we couldn't do it, you know, like we physically couldn't do it. Humans cannot be in system two for very long. It's exhausting. And so driving tends to be this thing we do subconsciously. And that means that things like the design of the road signals far more to us than the lingering underlying notion that I could get a ticket or I could get pulled over or I could, you know, there could be a danger around the corner. If, if the thing laying in front of you is signaling to you that there's no danger, the lanes are wide, the traffic flows freely, there's extra curve room, there's no trees, you know, go ahead and drive fast. Um, even if you are, you know, quote unquote, a very responsible person, you will tend to drive at speeds faster than what you what you otherwise should. If we go to your grandma and your, did you say your sister, your younger sister? My younger um, sister, yeah. Okay. Here's the interesting thing about grandmas and younger sisters. Grandmas tend to have to drive in system two because they tend to be um, less confident in their driving. They tend to have longer reaction time. And, and this is a general thing. I'm not stating this about like every elderly person, but there is some general statements that, you know, the older you are, the more difficulty you have judging gaps and intervals, the more um, cautious you tend to become, the worse your eyesight becomes and, and the, the harder it is for you to, to judge these things. Young people on the other hand, tend to suffer from what? Feeling like they're immortal, right? Like I, I can process this, all this stuff very quickly. And so what you see is that younger people tend to drive faster, tend to be more aggressive. And it's not because they are psychologically deranged or psychologically reckless. It's because they actually can process things faster than everybody else. And so they tend to discount the danger while also overestimating their own abilities. It, it makes this thing where there's a window uh, until you reach like the mid-20s where you actually are statistically a little more dangerous. And then a window when you get over, say, like 70 years old, where you also tend to be a little bit more dangerous. But the unique thing about them is that they're dangerous for different reasons and almost at same the same rate. So I would say you 
Abby, are safer than both your grandma and your younger sister. But your grandma and your younger sister are probably like the same degree of danger, just for like very different reasons. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> sorry, that just is funny to me. But you're <laughs> no, you're totally you're totally right, and that's the reason why you have to be a certain age to you know rent a car, rent a car for right. example. Yeah, exactly. So I guess you know just to point out that I think that they're. That's the reason I don't want to completely discount that there could be psychological factors at play, just because I think that even if driving is a system one activity, I think that there could be psychological factors that could influence, you know, your subconscious, basically, you know, it's both physical and psychological and that, you know, if, if uh, something traumatic happens to you and you're very upset, people will say, don't drive right now. You need to calm down. So part of me wonders if, if people are stressed out and, and that there's this kind of psychological uh, factor partnered with the fact that there's less people on the roads. You know, the roads are basically set up like speedways and so people can drive fast. However, I it, it is kind of this like weird narrative that these articles put on the psychological factors that may or may not exist that personally make me angry because I feel like it's such a stretch and such an oversimplification without any like clear data or analysis on the issue. And it's like just kind of putting people in boxes, like there are these caricatures and that we're not like all real people living in the world. <laughs> it's kind of like the people who write these articles, like don't talk to real people. So it's a little frustrating just to read the way that they characterize like just like people broadly in the world. They, they don't talk to real people or they have a narrative of you know, the other America that they're imposing. And I, I really feel like that's the deeper thing. You know, are there psychological factors that contribute to crashes? Obviously, yes. And I wouldn't deny that that's true. Is it like the most obvious and, and you know, simple answer and most direct answer and most compelling answer? I don't, I don't think in any way. Is it the largest factor? No. I mean, it... it the reality is, and I say this in, in Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, most people who drive drunk, almost everyone who drives drunk makes it home safely. And that's a hard thing for us to deal with and to come to grips with, is that the actual number of people who do reckless things on the roadway, um, almost all of them, it, it, it doesn't amount to a crash. It doesn't create some life, you know, ending or, or traumatic situation. And, you know, when, when you look at that, that that's disconcerting, right? Because there's a certain, I think, karma that we like to believe in that, you know, like if you do, if you do reckless things, bad things should happen to you. And the reality is, is our roadways affirm to people all the time that you can be reckless, you can do reckless things, and, and you still have like a 99.99% .99 chance of, of making it home safely with no incident. The, the, the problem is, and, and I think this is where a more sober analysis, one that is less framed on how deeply psychologically destructive we have become, uh, would look and say, statistically, it is inevitable that when you run thousands of cars a day on a dangerous street, tens of thousands of cars, millions of trips, billions of trips every day, on dangerous streets, that 
that 99.99%, if you can, if you say people are 99.999% likely to make it home doing reckless things, and you shift that slightly to 99.99%, right? You lose that nine one thousandth of a percent. You do that a billion times a day or a hundred million times a day or however many trips a day we're making, and you're going to wind up with you know, instead of 38,000 deaths a year, 45,000 deaths a year. And it's a dramatic increase. But it's a statistical inevitability that when you put people in this dangerous situation, these things are going to happen. And I think when you realize that, you realize that it's not a, a, a ramping up, in a sense, of our internal rage and our internal dialogue, but it is just, you know, the, the statistical way that these trips are being performed in this high danger zone that is leading to this outcome. It's really a mathematical thing more than anything else. Yeah, and I think that your point about times of the day that people are traveling is the big in insight here because that's not something that's brought up in any of these articles in addition to the actual design of the street. The issue may just be because people are traveling at different times because people are working differently. People may be commuting at different times or going to different places to do their work or staying home. I mean, it. and when you do that, you have these these clear open roads at more amounts of time. And that, that means more time in system one <laughs> driving and, and faster speeds. So I, I think that while there, there may be lots of different factors that kind of play into this, pointing to psychology being the the issue and we just need to fix the horrible humans that are <laughs> that are causing crashes i think is just a misguided narrative anyway because i mean you really that's a very complicated and i would say unrealistic kind of way to to fix things anyway you, i mean human nature and human psychology is something that is so complex that you can't just look to the media or institutions or governments or experts to like fix everybody i think that it makes a lot more sense to look at our physical environment and ask ourselves why can people go 50 miles per hour through neighborhoods and ask ourselves why people are, you know, why we've designed streets that are so forgiving that you could be driving fast and, and causing accidents. That to me is what, it's kind of the elephant in the room that, that we, these articles just aren't really touching on. Right, right. I think that there's another aspect of this and it's not wholly strong towns related, but I'm going to bring it up anyway, because I, I feel like it's important and I feel like it's something to be aware of. As these articles have come out, and again this week, you know, we've got a PR team here at Strong Towns. We have a lot of uh, communications with media. I have been interviewed by the New York Times. I have been uh, done things with the Washington Post. I have been published in CNN online many times. You know, I had conversations with people at Vox and at the LA Times on other topics, right? So I am someone, I am Chuck Marone, someone who is known to these different media sources as someone who has things to say on this particular topic. I am also, and, and I'll say this, you know, with humility, but, but you know, we're, we're talking about something here that I think is important in terms of communicating. 
for the last six months, I've had like the top book on this topic, like street design, road design. Like I am a published author with a lot of credentials and a very popular, very successful book that it talks about these exact things. As these articles have come out, we have reached out to all of these major publications and said, hey, there's an alternate narrative here. We, we're ready for an interview. If you'd like to talk to us, if you'd like some background information, if you'd like us to help you with this alternate narrative, a, a different way of understanding it than what is being put forth in your articles. I have written articles on this, done podcasts on this. We've shared them with these major media outlets. And we have gone to these major media outlets. And this week, we did a huge campaign to say, will any of you be willing to run an op-ed, an opinion piece, a guest submission from us that would put forth like a competing narrative? And I'm going to tell you, Abby, the, the, the response has not just been, yeah, I'm not sure or no or what. It's been... No, that that doesn't interest us. We have no compelling reason to look at that at all. And and the responses have been such a perfunctory rejection, even by places that have like specifically run our stuff before and said, anything you have, send it to us. We would love to run it. Don't want anything but the narrative that's being put forth today that somehow deranged people are out creating crashes. And I'm... I don't know where to go with that. I really don't. I'm not one who sits back and thinks, you know, well, the media has a clear bias and they're out to, you know, pump an agenda. But my gosh, like, what? Wh why are you picking the agenda that says, hate your neighbor? Your neighbor's the cause of this. The people around you are sick and deranged and horrific and they're causing this problem as opposed to a narrative that suggests that, hey, there's some very obvious and clear design things that we've known for a long time that are being accentuated by the now changes in traffic patterns. And, uh, you know, we can actually address these things in our own neighborhoods if we work together and do it. I don't know why the second narrative is not at all interesting to people who are writing about this. And when I try to ask that question, it disturbs me and I get deeply cynical and I start to feel yucky about everything that I'm reading and everything that I'm interacting with, with major media. And, and that bothers me because I don't want to be that person. Or the narrative, like in this article, that is saying that people are just broadly so scared of what's going on with the pandemic what's the date? February 2022, two years later, after, you know, vaccines are broadly available, like, like things seem, I mean, I just don't buy the idea that people are like, so freaked out that they're out driving erratically. I just, I just feel like that's kind of rich since it's such a half-baked argument to begin with. And there's these kind of competing ideas that, oh, it's the people who are just really freaked out who are driving erratically versus it's the, you know, evil anti-whatever type of person that uh, that everybody should just hate and they're driving erratically and it's their fault. I totally agree with you. I feel like that it's just, it's such a simplistic way to look at this and it's so half-baked and like, you know, it, it's just, it's just, uh, it's half-baked and it's unprofessional. How can you write an article about a crash in this Albuquerque death trap of an intersection and not talk to a design professional about the death trap nature of this intersection? Like, I, I don't, I don't get why that is not the central story. And I, I can tell you why. I mean, it, the, the very cynical part of me says that's not compelling because we've all accepted it and we're all used to that. 
What is compelling is to, you know, ramp up the fear of the other that there's all these, you know, if, if, if you are on this team, you can look at the other team and say, you know, it's those people and their reckless behavior or their fearfulness or their uh, selfishness that is causing this. And my gosh, that's just bad journalism. It's just really bad yeah. journalism. Well, people are addicted to this like junk food <laughs> mentality, unfortunately. And it seems that the New York Times, they should be looking at the things that aren't junk food. And if it's not a compelling narrative, make it compelling, make people care about the design, bring people in who can talk about the design and why this matters. Don't just lean into this like lazy junk food narrative that doesn't actually get to why people are dying on our streets. I mean, to me, it's just it like it's the path of least resistance. What people are addicted to being mad at the other, and so we'll just lean into that, and that that's the direction we'll go. It is unfortunate that it, I mean, I, I I couldn't tell you why. Um, since you guys have reached out to lots of media outlets, why they wouldn't run an alternate opinion piece at the very least. That that's kind of surprising to me. It is, and you know. I think the thing that makes me mad and the reason why I started off this whole this whole thing mad and angry about this. Yeah, you're too angry for a Friday, by I, the way. I am. I'm a happy guy. Like, I want to be calm. I want to be happy. <laughs> um, this makes me really mad because not only are people dying unnecessarily, but trying to put forth and impose this narrative that somehow it is deranged, reckless drivers. And all we need to do is get more police enforcement out there and pull more people over and, uh, you know, put more money into increasing the safety factor of our streets by adding in even more width and even more safety zones and even more stuff. I think what we are doing is we are disempowering the local leaders that can actually solve this problem today by spending less, by making their places more humane, by making their streets more humane, uh, by actually like calming traffic and by doing things that at the end of the day are good for their pocketbook, good for their residents' health, good for the safety of their community, good for people's quality of life. And, and we'll just like make like so many things way better. We're sidelining all of that so that we can be suspect and hate each other. And <laughs> that just sickens me. It sickens me. Yeah. It sickens me too, especially because I just don't have it in me to hate people. <laughs> no, I, I, I refuse I to play that me. game. Right. No. Yeah. It's uh, not, not a game that I am interested in. No. Someone said to me the other day, like, people just drive crazy down my street. They drive really fast down my street. And it, this is in, my, in our neighborhood, right? And I went out with them and I like looked at it. And I'm like, you know what? People are actually driving the speed limit here. It just feels like crazy because it's very close to you. And I, I, you know, like th there is a, there's a certain psychological trauma that comes from being within like five feet or 10 feet of a car going 20 miles an hour. It, it actually is really, really scary to do that. And I think when we're primed to think that everybody is like a madman, everybody's crazy out there, everybody's like, you know, foaming at the mouth, getting behind the wheel, this stupid article 
you know, in citing like thousands of statistics, goes out and says, you know, there was a person who drove a, a priest who drove, you know, was killed when someone was driving 90 miles an hour. Do you know how often like that is the cause of a crash, a fatal crash? Yes, there are those things that happen and there are people who drive like ridiculously reckless and sick the police on them and throw them in jail and take away their license. Like I'm fine with that. But if we're going to have 45,000 people die, almost all of those people are dying through the routine everyday use of our transportation system, the way it has been designed. It's not by people who are deviants doing reckless, crazy things. Well, don't worry, Chuck, because soon we'll just have autonomous vehicles and uh, we'll have gates (laughs) up along all the sidewalks and then all the pedestrians are going to be wearing these beacons that, Uh, you know, that keep the the cars from hitting people. uh, Vests. Uh-huh. Yeah. That'd be beautiful. (laughs) I'm I'm just trying to ruin your day. Yeah, I'm just kidding. Thank you. I'm going to go home and cry now. Yeah. What a nice future that would be, huh? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, um, let's leave it there. Uh, Hopefully we can get some more perspectives in the future on this issue because it seems like it's not an issue that's going away anytime soon. And it is something if, if people can consider the redesign, just really simple ways to redesign problematic intersections at the very least, um, that could make a huge difference and a difference where we don't have to point our fingers at uh, people we don't like (laughs) to, uh, you know, to be unproductive about the situation. We could save lives that way. Well, so let's leave it there. And before we get finished today, we can go into the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything we've been up to lately, anything that we have been reading, watching, listening to. Chuck, what's been on your mind? I, I've been I've been doing this program, and I'm I'm not going to talk about it. It's kind of personal, but it's crowded out like a lot of the normal things that I do. Part of the program is uh, giving up TV for ninety days, and so I literally have not watched any TV shows or anything like that. It's also be, because it's taken a lot of my day. I haven't been reading as much, and I actually noticed this week. I told my wife, I said, you know, we're getting towards the middle of February, I would have usually had like six books done by now. And I've gotten through like one and a half uh, so far this year. So I'm way, I'm way behind. But I, I've been doing this audiobook the last couple of weeks called Beyond Words. Uh, the subtitle is What Animals Think and Feel. And I, I don't think I brought it up last time. I had just started it. It's, um, it's very interesting because it combines a lot of what you know, you could say are like observations about animal and animal behavior. The the section right now is going through elephants and elephants are, are, are fascinating just in terms of their own culture and their own uh, communication, their own, um, I don't know what the technical like biological term would be, but, you know, in a human sense, the, the communities that they create and the, the kind of structure of their society but it also gets into some of the kind of advancements on brain and brain development that that are, are newer and combines these observations with some hard science. And it's really been an interesting book so far. It's I'm open to the idea. You know, I, I grew up on a farm. And when you're on a farm, you learn to eat the, the pets that you have. And so that changes the nature of the relationship, you know. Uh, quite a bit. You can be compassionate to a cow or a pig uh, 
um, or a chicken and you can treat them with respect and dignity, but you also know that at some point uh, they will be food in your stomach. And it, it does it does create a, a relationship that I find that people who have not grown up in that don't have. Um, but I like how this book is really expanding what I feel like is a base knowledge that I have of, you know, this this level of respect that creatures besides humans obviously have complex society and complex emotions. And this is putting some science behind it in a way that I'm finding uh, very enjoyable and wow. engaging. Yeah, yeah that, that's something I would love to, to read. Um, this is going to sound really personal, but I have like, I'm somebody who dreams every night and I've been having these really intense dreams all week with different animals in them. And last night when I was dreaming, I had this sense that they're, that they're sentient and, you know, have feelings and can think and, and maybe even think in somewhat complex ways. And I don't know, it's just kind of funny. Um, it was something that, that I was thinking about this morning when I woke up, um, so yeah, that would be something that I'd like to read. One of the interesting things, observations, is that you know humans perceive in the ways that that we that we perceive, and and there are other dimensions of perception and communication. You know, and and we can look at infrared, like you and I don't see infrared, but we have developed. Um, you know, ways, optic ways to view infrared. You and I don't hear outside of a certain sound range, but we're aware that other animals do. Uh, and we've developed optical things to be able to hear those things. Um, but those are dimensions that we're aware of, you know, and, 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 and we're just aware that our range is limited. There are clearly like other ways that, that animals in particular have evolved to be able to relate to and communicate with each other that we have, you know, we, we can demonstrate that they are there because we can see uh, cause and effect, um, but we don't understand how it happens. And I think that that's just, it's very mysterious and it's very interesting. It, it, it shows that, you know, there is so much to learn in the universe. Uh, and it, I don't know, I find that kind of exciting. Well, in plants as well. I mean, I'm sure yes. you've seen, you know, studies on how plant networks communicate with one another and maybe that having something to do with like the the mycelia and the in the soil and you know, we live in a very complex intelligent kind of world that we don't fully understand um which is pretty pretty cool, I think. So maybe your dreams are because your dog is communicating with you uh, telepathy wise, or some some dimension you don't understand, but it's surfacing in your dreams. Maybe we'll just go with that, huh? <laughs> yeah, we'll just go with that. I think if she was communicating <laughs> with me, she would probably be sending me dreams about getting cheese from the refrigerator yeah. and giving it to her. <laughs> so I haven't had any of those dreams yet, but if I do, then it's I'll coming. know that it's yeah. coming from her. Uh -huh. Um, well, yeah, I, so you'll be proud of me with, with my down zone. I was just going to share that since I've been cooped up um, from the snow for the past couple of days, I um, have been able to make my way out into the snow. I Over lunch today, I actually like bundled up and decided that I am going to embrace the snow and embrace the cold. I put some wool socks on, which is a huge game changer, and some good snowshoes. And I took my dog out in the snow and it's, 
it, you know, it, I actually was able to take her to an area where I could just let her loose. And she had such a fun time. It was fun to just watch her run around in the snow and roll around in it. By the time we were done, she was like completely white, just covered with snow, which was great. She, she likes it more than I do, definitely. But I'm trying to learn how to embrace the uh, <laughs> these snow days because month from now, hopefully it'll be over. You learn to embrace it just by doing it. You know, I, I, I will say, I mean, Griff- Gryffindor and I take a couple mile walk every night, even when it's 10 below, even when it's 20 below, and we'll come back and his face will be all frosted over and, you know, icicles hanging off his whiskers and all that. And he'll be, look at me and he'll be like, I'll go again. Like, let's do it. This is awesome. So I think you just, yeah, you, you embrace it and you get, you know, you do it and it uh, becomes something you miss when you don't. So awesome. Does your, does your dog not get the pause where I, my dog will uh, start picking mm. up her paws after a while and won't want, want to keep walking. And when it's, it's really frigid, the- no, no, it is. It is the cold when it's really frigid. He does that. Yes. And yeah. when I see him doing that, we'll kind of head for home because, yeah. but yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't, I don't know. He doesn't too much. We've gotten to points where I've had to pick her up and she's 60 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then I carried her home, which is, you know, I guess good because I'm not going to the gym that day, but, right. but you know, spoiled dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're all spoiled. Yeah. Well, so you know, we I'm. Too. I'm adapted like a lizard in the desert heat. So I like to be, I like to be warm, but I'm trying to embrace the cold. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Well, thanks again, Chuck. I appreciate you coming on today. It was, it's always good to talk to you. Um, and thank you everyone so much for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. <laughs> Bye-bye. Let me show you what I'm about to do.